Welcome, friends, to the court of the Trashy Royals, where we are kicking off our first season with this trashy triumvirate about Rome. I'm Alicia. Stacy, you're bringing us a bit of a counterpoint figure to the Caligula story. Indeed. So rather than talking much about Rome's emperors today, we're going to talk instead about the people and places subjected to Roman conquest, with a particular focus on England's original warrior for justice queen, Boudicca. This episode touches on about a century in the life of Roman expansion into the rest of Europe and the British Isles, and one thing I love about it is how it makes the point that everything old is new again, and diplomacy, conflict, and warfare have been around since always. Ain't that the truth. Mm. I guess if we're going to conquer Britannia, there's no time like the present. There are many ways to pronounce this particular, let's call her a warrior queen, this particular warrior queen's name. Obviously, no one living today knows exactly how people in the year 60 AD were were saying it, so we're just guessing, but I think the current thinking is Boudicca. I've also heard Bodicea. I think you've got a few you've heard as well. Anyway. Boudicca is what we're going with. Boudicca is what we're going with. Alicia, if we jump back in time a couple thousand years and uh, further transport ourselves to the area of eastern England that now includes the counties of Norfolk and parts of Suffolk and Cambridgeshire, we would find ourselves amongst a people who called themselves the Iceni. I'm not precisely sure when and where the Iceni identity and culture developed, but it was part of the roughly 800-year-long expansion of the broader Celtic world of Europe, the UK, and Ireland. We know that by 10 BC, the Iceni were minting coins, and that uniquely among the various British tribal groups, some of their coins were inscribed with their tribal name, as well as at least some of the time the names or abbreviations of the names of their kings or leaders. Interesting. Okay. Going back further in time, Julius Caesar himself had begun successive attempts to subdue the British Isles, Britannia, uh, for Rome, starting back in 55 BC. This is before Caligula, all of that. This seems to have been more or less what we might think of as a counterterrorism mission, actually, because the various communities in Britannia, in modern Britain, had longstanding ties to their neighbors across the Channel in Gaul, modern France, and many of those early Britons had been helping those early French resist Roman capture, yeah, Roman conquest of their territory. In any case, while Julius Caesar's efforts saw some successes... Like, it was that hostage-taking thing where, like, they would take the children of the elites and then take them to Rome and raise them as, you know, Romans and then send them home to acculturate, right? It's Um, all terrible. It, I mean, it's better, I guess, than, I can think of worse outcomes. I'm just saying. Through history, yes. (laughs) So, yes. So, how, you know, whatever successes he saw, they did not result in widespread territorial conquest on the island. Rather, it sparked the emergence of what we would probably think of as soft power, which is like a growing cultural and trade relationship between, in particular, the tribes of southeastern England and Rome itself. This would pay off handsomely for Rome decades later, 
but would also deal the Romans significant pain in the time of Boudicca. Alicia, as you mentioned, Little Boots himself, Caligula, is said to have taken an invading force to the edge of Gaul, from which, in theory, his armies would conquer Britain decades later in 39 AD. No, they just threw their weapons in the sea they to fight Poseidon. Just, they just went to town on <laughs> Poseidon, whose people have no comment on that battle. <laughs> Upon reaching the shore of the channel, he instead ordered his men to gather up seashells and fill their helmets with them, calling them spoils from the ocean due to the capital and Palatine. It is not recorded what his troops thought of this great shoreline victory, but I suspect it beats dying violently while attempting to land at Dover. True that. Caligula did order a massive lighthouse built at the site, uh, at what is now the city of Boulogne in France. This would stand in one form or another until the 16th century, so that's not nothing. It fell into the sea at that point. Charlemagne rebuilt it in the 8th century. Had quite a quite a story behind it, but is is no longer there. And this is the tower in Calais. It's it's in the Cal- yeah it's in the Calais metropolitan area, which will or come around to be a pretty important area when we get into Plantagenet oh, yes. Tudor England. Oh, sure. In our journey, Hundred Years War, the final status settlements of Calais. Like oh, I don't yeah. I don't know if they've worked out who owns it yet. So all right, anyway. TBD. As we learned, uh, Caligula was a bit of a short-termer, as Roman emperors go. So he was succeeded by his co-heir. Tiberius had made Caligula and Claudius co-heirs. And so in the year 41, after Caligula was no more, Claudius becomes emperor. Claudius was an unexpected emperor because he had been a sickly child. Some childhood illness had left him slightly deaf. He had a limp, maybe polio? Not clear. I don't want to overstate the successful reign of Claudius, as it still involved quite a lot of bloodshed to head off rivalries from other Roman nobles. But given the two emperors who preceded him, Caligula and Tiberius, and their, like, debauchery of violence and sadism, it must have been pretty good to have a nerdy technocrat who was deeply into the law and loved major building projects running the Roman Empire. (laughs) He reigned for almost 14 years, which is a pretty good run. And one of his most important achievements was finally successfully getting Rome a territorial foothold among the tribes of Britain. That is true. In the year 43, possibly in reaction to the rise of a leader on the island called Caratacus of the Catawalani tribe, Claudius ordered Roman legions to modern-day Boulogne, where this tower was, where they would cross the channel to invade. A popular jumping-off spot, it turns out. (laughs) As part of the soft power era of those previous decades, Communities in the region that is now southeastern England had been benefiting mightily from trade with Rome, and in particular, with a vibrant trade in human beings they had captured from the western and northern parts of the British Isles. By pushing other groups out, Caratacus was able to expand Catawalani territory, and Caratacus held a staunchly anti-Roman view that may have had origins all the way back to Julius Caesar's original conquest attempts almost a century before. Although I think there were Catawalani leaders in between who had sort of seen the benefits of having a friendly and peaceful trade relationship with Rome. For our Shakespeare fans, looking at you, Alicia, Caratacus is the son of a guy named Cunobelinus, or perhaps Cunobelin, like, I don't know how to pronounce any of this, and no one else does either, who had once been exiled by his own father, the king, and had gone to Rome seeking assistance. There is some reason to think that he may have been among 
those elite hostage children who grew up in the court of Emperor Augustus, but details are mostly lost to history. That said, his name loomed large in the legends of Britain, and to one degree or another inspired the Shakespeare play Cymbeline. Interesting. Yeah, I think that's a sort of Welsh derivation, but there's a whole lot of the linguistic overlaps here with huh. Welsh and French, and it's, it's all. It was a long time ago. Anyway, Cunobilinus was both copacetic with Rome and a major force in the intratribal politics in Britain at the time, and particularly in gaining territory from the neighboring Atrabates group. After Caratacus succeeded his father, perhaps around 40 AD, he continued harrying the Atrabates people and eventually defeated them and forced their leader to flee into exile. This was Verica. And so Verica, as one would, headed to Rome to ask Emperor Claudius for help in recovering his conquered kingdom. Claudius, ever the builder and expander of the Roman Empire, was happy to oblige, and thus did his forces invade Britain in the year 43. On the emperor's orders, Aulus Plautius led four Roman legions and a number of auxiliary troops, this was about 40,000 men in total, across the channel and likely made their initial landfall in Kent. Hmm. Because of the size of the invasion force, the Britons, who were led by Caratacus and his brother Togodumnus, wow, the names, melted away and relied on guerrilla warfare to dent the army rather than fight them head on. Togodumnus died after losing a battle at the River Thames, and Caratacus was defeated at the River Medway, although he survived and continued guerrilla warfare against the Romans. After the brothers were vanquished, Plautius sent for Emperor Claudius, who came all the way to Britannia and completed Plautius's march to modern-day Colchester, which was then the Catawalanian capital of Camulodunum. Sure, sure, we'll go with that. Sure, Colchester comes off the tongue better. A number of regional kings surrendered to Rome there. I think there were 11 who came to like ingratiate themselves to the actual emperor of Rome on Interesting. British okay. territory, yeah. So a big chunk of Britannia became a province of Rome. Like from there, Rome pushed its armies out. It's actually, they covered a ton of territory. Like they they occupied a a lot of the island. Very much. That is a good bit of background to get us to the Iceni people who occupied this chunk of eastern Britannia north of Colchester. During the invasion of 43, they were tacitly on Rome's side, but I think the situation was a bit like we'll stay out of this if you leave us alone, rather than any, like, we love Rome, like, come build us an aqueduct. This was adequate for Aulus Plautinus, who had the most powerful tribal group in Britannia to conquer. A few years on, however, Aulus was rewarded with a hero's welcome back to Rome and a new provincial governor, Publius Astorius Scapula, came to Britannia. Oh my. God, these names. He was very focused on the security situation in the region, and in particular, he was uncomfortable with all these little tribal groups that were not technically conquered by Rome. Some of them continued to resist militarily, although I don't think the Iceni were among them, but there were a number of attacks, there were other acts of anti-Roman agitation, and so Scapula had a big idea. Oh, what was that? Oh my god, our Second Amendment people will be so thrilled to hear the rest of the story. In 47 AD, Scapula decreed that no Britons could carry weapons within the range of Roman control on the island. Now think about the technology of the era and how one acquired food. 
This you need is, a weapon. You need a spear. You need self-defense when you're traveling. I mean, just wow. Okay, so the Iceni, they take a look at this decree. And even though they are nominal friends of Rome, they object quite strongly. I mean, they haven't done anything wrong. Why would they be punished? Right. This is ridiculous. How are we going to feed ourselves? Yeah, exactly. So also, you know, there are modern concerns that we can relate to about extremely flimsy excuses that cops use to slang up people who were just minding their own business. I think probably people on the island, locals, were probably concerned about Roman soldiers getting a little too... Overreach. Overreach, yes. So it's not hard to understand why the Iceni, who'd made a point of keeping decent relations with the Roman invaders in exchange for autonomy, were not happy. They led an uprising along with neighboring tribes to fight for their right to knife things. But, you know, Scapula eventually quelled the rebellion. After their defeat, the Iceni were allowed to remain independent, but Scapula installed a new king for them. This was Prositagus. Other stories have it that Prositagus was among the 11 kings who surrendered to Claudius back in 43, but, you know, one way or another, like... At this point, he was the king of the Iceni. Being a part of a royal family might seem enticing, but more often than not, it comes at the expense of everything else, like your freedom, your privacy, and sometimes even your head. Wondery's new podcast, Even the Royals, pulls back the curtain on royal families, past and present from all over the world, to show you the darker side of what it means to be royalty. From icons like Grace Kelly, Oscar-winning actress turned Princess of Monaco, who the world saw as the ultimate good girl, she mastered playing a happy wife and mother, but beneath it all, she was desperately lonely. Grace spent her whole life working towards perfection, and it ultimately cost her her happiness. Or King Ludwig II from Bavaria. He was only 18 when his father died, leaving the crown to him and a duty to rule that he never wanted. He refused to lead and used funds from the royal treasury to further his extreme love of opera. But this choice eventually cost him the crown and his life. Mm. Follow Even the Royals on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge Even the Royals ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. One way that Rome imposed its laws on its client kingdom, on all of its client kingdoms, was the presumption that upon the death of a client king, the people and lands that the person ruled would just be left to the emperor in the king's will. Like, perfect, right? This is a lot like you were talking about the made-to-commit-suicide as a way to... The incentive there is your family probably keeps your lands and property, whereas if Rome has to kill you, Rome gets all of that. It's similar. It's similar legalese. These guys really pioneered lawyers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Prasitagus had two daughters, and in spite of his pro-Roman feelings, an independent enough spirit that this whole, the emperor in Rome gets all Iceni territory, did not work for him. His will established instead that the emperor was a co-heir of his alongside his two daughters. How do you think that worked? Thirteen presumably happy years after becoming the king of the Iceni, Prasitagus died in AD 60 or 61. And when this whole co-heir situation was described to the Romans, 
The Iceni were given a good-natured pat on the head while the Roman legions set about studiously ignoring all of that and taking the place for themselves. Well, sure. Even worse, when Prasitagus's widow, Boudica, objected to Rome's disregard of his wishes, they hauled her out into the public square and flogged her while they raped the couple's two daughters. Not cool, man. Not cool. So by now, Scapula was long dead. He died in AD 52. And there were there was a series of military governors of varying quality who had come and gone or come and died. You know, the new governor, the current governor, had arrived in 58. And Gaius Suetonius Paulinus had adopted an especially aggressive stance against rebellious tribes in Wales. While Dudebro was off adventuring among the Welsh, Boudicca rallied the Iceni and the neighboring Trinovantes tribe into a full-scale, burn-it-all-down rebellion against Roman rule. Perfect. This is from a 2nd century or 3rd century account by Lucius Cassius Dio in his Roman History. A terrible disaster occurred in Britain. Two cities were sacked, 80,000 of the Romans and of their allies perished, and the island was lost to Rome. Moreover, all this ruin was brought upon the Romans by a woman, a fact which in itself caused them the greatest shame. But the person who was chiefly instrumental in rousing the natives and persuading them to fight the Romans, the person who was thought worthy to be their leader and who directed the conduct of the entire war, was Boudicca, a Briton woman of the royal family and possessed of greater intelligence than often belongs to women. Wow. So, so Thanks, Lucius Deo. So difficult here, Lucy. In stature, she was very tall, in appearance most terrifying, in the glance of her eye most fierce, and her voice was harsh. A great mass of the tawniest hair fell to her hips. Around her neck was a large golden necklace, and she wore a tunic of diverse colors, over which a thick mantle was fastened with a brooch. This was her invariable attire. She sounds like a badass. Yeah, Dudebro never met her. I mean, they were not even alive in the same century. This was all made up. But, I mean, this is, this person, Boudicca factually existed in history. All the rest of this is Lucius trying to sell books. Okay. Hey, everything old is new again, all right? In the uprising, the cities known today as Colchester, this was, again, Camulodunum, the capital of the Catawalians, or the previous capital. So London, Londinium, and St. Albans, which was then Verulamium, they were captured and to one extent or another destroyed. Camulodunum, in particular, was home to a colony for retired Roman soldiers, and those guys had apparently made some sort of sport of abusing the local Britons. No, that doesn't get you very far. Oh, no. And Roman soldiers could, I mean... Warfare at the time was deeply personal, you know? I mean, if you're fighting with swords, like... Yeah. It's... You, you, you get some bad habits going. So, Boudicca's army is apparently engaged in a fairly thorough slaughter of the entire Roman inhabitation of the area over a two- or three-day period. It was not fast, and it was not pretty. Emperor Nero, successor of Claudius, considered abandoning Britannia altogether. Which, with the problems he's going to have in short order, he should have. Hmm. Nero's who we're going to come back around to in our next episode, stepson of Claudius. Yeah. Nero should have just begged out at this point. Yeah. Coulda, woulda, shoulda. We just liked the way that you have 
Caligula being a super weird Roman emperor, and then you have a an anti-Roman uprising followed by another super weird Roman emperor. It kind of makes the uprising look very smart. <laughs> very smart. Bodica, we're with you. Suetonius, who had been off in Wales bothering the Welsh, was able to rally his forces. And despite being badly outnumbered by the locals, he, of course, had a better trained and better equipped bunch of Roman legions behind him. And so they defeated Bodica's armies. She would die shortly thereafter. It's not clear. There, she may have been wounded in battle. She may have developed an illness. She may have, she may have died by suicide. It's, it's unclear and not all of the, like, those aren't mutually exclusive, right? Like, she could have been wounded sure. and chosen to take her own life. She could have been ill and lost her territory. Like, anyway, this rebellion might have fallen between history's cracks if it weren't for that early historian, Lucius Cassius Dio though he lived like a century and a half after Boudicca's death, and there's no evidence that any of her rallying speeches to her armies were ever written down, he helpfully imagined what she told them. Oh, perfect. Yes, creating the following that she supposedly said. Again, dude's got to sell some books. Here we go to quote from... Maybe. Boudicca via <laughs> Lucius, who never met her. Quote, Have we not been robbed entirely of most of our possessions? And those the greatest, while for those that remain, we pay taxes. Besides pasturing and tilling for them all our other possessions, do we not pay a yearly tribute for our very bodies? How much better it would be to have been sold to masters once and for all than possessing empty titles of freedom to have to ransom ourselves every year. How much better to have been slain and to have perished than to go about with a tax on our heads. Who doesn't love a little revolution? Woo! Down with taxation! Okay. So the legend of Boudicca and her uprising persisted in the literature of the countries of the UK in early periods, but it really came back during the Renaissance when works of these earlier historians like Lucius Cassius Dio and Tacitus, who also wrote about Boudicca, were translated into English and available for public consumption. Over the centuries, she's been embraced as a folk hero and an icon of national resistance, and is seen as a leader who would gladly trade the material comforts of a stable authoritarianism for the risks and joys of liberty and self-determination, a quandary that, in truth, mankind has not yet resolved and that each person struggles with at various points in their life. You know, the comfortable job versus the impulse towards, you know, entrepreneurism or you know, a happy-ish relationship versus seeking out your great love. Like, this is, on smaller scales, this is kind of what we all deal with. So this is pretty much what the historical record has for us on Boudicca, but on Caratacus, there is a little bit more. So in the year 50, 10 years before Boudicca's rebellion, give or take, after his army was defeated by Scapula, he fled into what is now Yorkshire, which was then the territory of the Brigante people. Their queen, Cartamandua, was a genuine ally of Rome, and she promptly had Caratacus chained up and shipped off to Scapula, who sent him along to Rome as a prize from the war in Britannia. Look how good we're doing! I caught the leader! Good stuff. It's thought that the plan was to showcase him in a big parade down the streets of Rome. They love to do that. They love yeah. that, probably in a cage. And even let him address the Roman Senate before killing him for his transgressions against Roman rule. But Caratacus wowed the Senate with his speech, in which he made the case that 
his status, power, and worldly possessions back home had made his resistance necessary, and that it was the strength of his resistance that made his being captured alive such a gift for Rome, and that Rome could forever revel in the gleaming spectacle of his defeat if only they let him live out his life among them. And they did. Wow. That is a Quite, wordplay yes, magic. Silver-tongued. So Lucius Deo Cassius, again, assigns a quotation to him that I believe is fully made up, essentially saying of the glory of the city of Rome, this, again, quoting this, I mean, let's face it, you know, British nationalist. And can you then, who have got such possessions and so many of them, still covet our poor huts? I don't think that was ever said. Probably not. (laughs) Probably not. But as far as we know, I I could not find a date of death for Caratacus, but it does seem like history believes that he lived out his days in in Rome. Good on him. The capital of Imperial Rome, the the beating heart of... Better Rome than dead. For sure. Stacy. Yeah. Wow. That was a ride. Let's rebel against Rome. Let's rebel against Rome. Do you have trash crowns for Boudicca? I do. And I honestly think I'm going to go quite low for Boudicca because I don't think she was trashy. Doesn't sound like it. Doesn't sound like it. She, she sounds like she was a badass. She she was she was a queen. She was the wife of apparently a peacekeeping king. And uh, Rome's the one that screwed that up. So I'm just going to give her one trash crown. That she wears on her mantle with her brooch and her tawny hair. Absolutely. Love I it. mean, there was... Uh, particularly vicious slaughtering that happened in the sacking of three cities. But, uh, I mean, that was just how you did it back then. You got to play by the rules of war. Got to play by the rules. I mean, look, Rome only understands one thing, right? (laughs) (laughs) You're not wrong. So, yeah, that's, we're going to go with one. This Karatakis guy. Does he get a trashy crown? I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to give him five just because he managed to sway the Roman Senate and keep him alive, apparently. It's a big deal to stay alive in Rome. I would think. Mm -hmm. Especially as a captured, like, leader of an opposition army. So, so uh, good on you, Caratacus. Awesome. Silver-tongued, but defeated in battle. We're going to come back on the next Trashy Royals and talk about Nero, Mm -hmm. the Mm -hmm. end of the Julio-Claudian Empire. Couldn't come soon enough. It was a nice little Boudicca sandwich in between Caligula and Nero. Sure. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to this episode of Trashy Royals. We'll be back sooner than you know with Nero, who wasn't even in Rome when it burned, but that doesn't mean that he was not a terrible, terrible dude. Was he off doing open mics? He did so many things. We are going to be back with you next episode with all of that tale. Thanks again, everybody, for tuning in. You know, we like it when you stay trashy, but not as trashy as the royals, y'all. For sure. Straighten up those crowns, friends. We'll be back. Have a great week. Bye. Bye.